Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. We're going to be having a chat about the history of football in all its terms, and. Regular listeners of the show will know that every, I mean, every episode, I'm, I, I refer to all of you alert listeners as sports fans at the end. And, um, you know, in over 130 episodes, I've actually done very little to follow through on that. So today, we're going to be covering the history of the most popular sport on the planet, soccer, of course, as well as many uh, many of the other different variants and offshoots that is, it's produced over the years. There's rugby, obviously, there's American, Canadian football, there's Gaelic football, and of course, the realest, most authentic, and most pure of all the football variants. Bloody Aussie rules, mate. Aussie rules footy, get around it. Um, there are so many uh, funny and interesting bits and pieces when it comes to that comes to the history of football, uh, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, way longer than uh, than you might expect here. And uh, I guess I should point out before we begin the for the most part for this episode when I when I use the term football today. Um, I'm not talking about soccer. Um, I'm talking about the the family of sports that emerged uh, before being developed and codified into all the different variants of football that we know today. Obviously, if I just wanted to talk about soccer, I would just use the word soccer because it's the proper name for the sport, mate. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. Soccer, it's not football. And I mean, we can all agree there. Anyway, as I say, a lot to get across today. Hundreds of years of history and some very silly nonsense along the way, including you'll be very pleased to hear a very light sprinkling of horrible murder here and there. Not not too not too much of it, but uh, there is uh, <laughs> the history of football is perhaps a little more violent than uh, than you might imagine. But uh, let's get to it. Let's get to it here and have a chat about the history of football, soccer, gridiron, rugby, and of course Aussie bloody rules, mate. Aussie rules, all of them. We're going to cover all of them here. We're going all the way back. All well, geez, where are we going to actually? All the way back to. Um, where do we start? Let's let's have a think about. It. I mean, it really depends what you mean by football, actually, doesn't it? So so let's figure out what what, what we mean exactly by that term. Let's figure out what we're talking about here. Football as a family of sports uh, usually involves a game of two teams uh, between around what ten to twenty people on each side, and players uh, kick or otherwise propel a, a ball. Uh, towards their opponent's end of the playing area and get points by um, either putting it into a goal area or um, between some sticks in the ground or maybe over a line on the ground. Um, and uh, the other tra- other team tries to stop the, the you from doing this, basically, while also trying to do it themselves. And uh, finally, but very importantly, players don't use anything other than their bodies to move the ball. No sticks, no rackets, clubs, paddles, nothing like that. And that probably is the, the biggest differentiator um, of the uh, of the football family of sports compared to other ones where, you know, you can hit something with a bat or a, or a racket or whatever else. So that's a loose definition of football. And uh, I guess perhaps the, the earliest game that meets this uh, this very loose definition, it takes us all the way back to the, uh, to the third century BCE. So this is uh, 2,300 years ago here to ancient China. China, as well as Korea, Japan, uh, and Vietnam. So some uh, some East Asian countries here. And this game that they played there called Kuju. Uh, it was thought to be a military training exercise to help keep the, the soldiers nice and, and fit. Kuju had some stuff uh, in common with modern soccer, but there was only one goal rather than two. It was one goal right in the middle of the field, although sometimes they did play with two in different vari- again, different variants from, from place to place. 
Um, another ancient form of the game was called uh, Episkoros. It was played in ancient Greece, although this game was very violent um, and you could actually use your hands to move the ball, so not quite like soccer. Uh, a bit more like rugby, I suppose, although you're not, we're, not, we're not completely sure on, on all the rules and everything. They, 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 the ancient Greeks seem to, they, they seem to have forgotten to, to televise all the, all the major matches. Very foolish and forgetful of the ancient Greeks there, you'll agree with me. We don't have a, lot, a great, you know, we don't have a huge amount of evidence of, uh, of what the game looked like because they, they forgot to bloody turn the cameras on, apparently. Um, various other cultures around the world had similar games. I mean, look, it's not surprising. It's not a very complicated concept, kicking a ball across a field. Um, and a lot of people got around to inventing it. Various indigenous people in North America played football-like games, sometimes w- with European co- colonials when they arrived. And um, that was in contrast, actually, to some Mesoamerican civilizations that invented games that were much more like basketball and volleyball, and then other North, North American, Native American uh, civilizations uh, played games more similar to lacrosse. So quite a, quite a bevy of different sports in, in North America and, and Central America there. Um, and throughout the Pacific, too, football, football-like games were, were quite popular. Indigenous Australians and, and Maoris played ball games that, that roughly fit the definition of football, though we don't know, don't know a huge amount about them, to be honest. Um, but it's important to note that many of these games that we've talked about here, and I mean, not all of them, but, but some of them at least, they were played with stuffed balls, not inflated ones, which would bloody hurt your foot, uh, booting around a leather orb filled with stuffing, I reckon. But um, to move more to in, in the direction of the precursor of modern football and, and sort of, you know, kick off that family tree here, to kickstart our, our history of the game that would later spawn soccer and all of its variants, we turn our attention to the medieval British Isles, particularly England, um, perhaps as early as the 9th century here, a bloody long time ago. But uh, we come into focus here in the 12th century. It may have been started. It may, may have been played as early as the 9th century. But but we really uh, we have we have this whole thing come into focus really in the 1100s um, in in the 12th century, uh, when proper accounts of what is today referred to as mob football start to emerge. This was a a chaotic and violent game that has. Uh, I mean, look, some similarities to modern sports. Mob football was played not on a field or, or like, you know, sort of a, an enclosed space with boundaries. No, it was played between two villages or even towns. So it was, wasn't played in a field so much as it was played on many fields. Um, uh, and, uh, and rather than, uh, you know, two teams uh, with, uh, you know, just, what, 10 to 20 people, there would be hundreds because if your village was playing against another village, you'd come down and you'd get stuck in and you'd get involved along with the hundreds of other people that lived in your village. Uh, you'd try to propel a ball, whether it was stuffed, as I mentioned, stuffed with stuffing or whatever else, uh, or inflated, a, an inflated pig's bladder often. Uh, you'd, you'd try to propel that ball to the opposing goal, which was usually the parish church in the other village. You'd try to kick it through you know, the balcony or just a window of the church, and that was how you'd score. Um, and again, the entire village had come out and play hundreds and hundreds of people, not just playing the game, but also just fighting and scuffling and getting stuck in with a good bit of rough and tumble here as the ball moved between two, again, entire villages. There weren't really rules um, as such. I mean, rather than rules, the only thing you had to worry about was like the actual law itself. You weren't allowed to kill anyone, for example, while playing... Also, while not playing football, you weren't allowed to kill anyone full stop. And broadly speaking, those laws have survived both in a criminal sense and on the football field. As far as I know, there isn't a modern 
code of football that does allow murder as part of its uh, legal gameplay proceed. It'd be a very different game, I'd imagine. It'd be a very bloody different game if you could do a murder in order to, uh, in order to score a goal. But, um, but as I say, no real rules, definitely no referee. I mean, there's nothing in the way of a referee in any case. It was just bloody anarchy. You could, could do, essentially, again, whatever you wanted as long as it wasn't actually illegal. Um, and various documents over the centuries sort of uh, give us a, a picture of what this this game uh, looked like. They make reference to uh, this mob football with descriptions of, uh, you know, various details surviving from the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And uh, from what we can tell uh, from many of these rather oblique references that were made to the, the game, not all the, not all the descriptions are hugely detailed, um, is that, that it, it seemed to be completely chaotic, just aggressive and enormously brutal indeed. Most accounts talk about the violence and the destruction they uh, that, that, that these games of football brought rather than, you know, the, the tactics, I guess, of being in a Malay trying to propel a pigskin into an opposing church window. Um, but it wasn't just violence and destruction that was, you know, that was wrought on people like opposing players or whatever else. It was also against buildings and property as well. These games would bust up houses and shops and disrupt the orderly runnings of towns and villages. And there are plenty of examples um, of, uh, you know, of, of, of games of football ripping through a town, ravaging it, you know, almost right, not raising it to the ground, but you, you get the idea, and uh, leaving scores of people injured in its wake. Um, uh, and, and some of the injuries people suffered, quite bad. I mean, broken bones all over the place, of course, and even the odd stabbing, which certainly isn't, you know, what most people are looking for when they when they uh, head out for a day at the football, there is uh, there's an example of a uh, there's a document from Ireland in 1308 that tells us about how one of the spectators accidentally stabbed one of the players. I mean, hardly surprising given your 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 common football fan. Although today they just content themselves with hurling abuse at the players rather than you know stabbing them. Um, Anyway, it was in the 14th century that governments, uh, in, in, in response to this wanton violence, uh, began to crack down on mob football, which is, you know, unsurprising given that they were just organised chaos and very often not even organised. In 1314, English merchants petitioned King Edward II to ban football altogether as it was so disruptive to trade and commerce, not just because games would, you know, bust up shops and whatever else, they'd also uh, block highways and prevent goods from being delivered safely. And uh, King Edward II, he responded with a decree that banned football altogether with the following reasoning. Check this out. There is great noise in the city caused by hustling over large balls from which many evils may arise, which God forbid. We command and forbid on behalf of the king on pain of imprisonment such game to be used in the city in the future. So now you'd get bloody locked up for a bit of kick to kick, although the... Law was hardly effective, to be honest, and the games continued. Uh, maybe some people were locked up for it, but you can't keep the spirit of football down, mate. Absolutely not. Um, and other attempts to ban the game in England, in which occurred in, in the coming years, were all broadly unsuccessful. But there was a very good reason, um, on top of the, the, the chaos and destruction, there's a very good reason that various kings of England attempted to, um, to ban uh, football because they saw it as a distraction from a much more important pastime at the time. I mentioned in episode 88 how archery practice was actually mandatory for English citizens in the 14th century, especially with the backdrop of the Hundred Years' War. And football was seen as a distraction from archery practice. And so it was banned again in 1349 by Edward III, 
and then again in 1389 by Richard II, then in 1401 by Henry IV, and then in 1477 by Edward IV. And Edward IV's ban stated that no person shall practice football on such games, but every strong and able-bodied person shall practice with the bow for the reason that the national offence depends upon such bowmen. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the reasoning is very clear. You're contributing to national security by having people do archery instead of play football. But, I mean, I don't know about, I don't know about that, Edward, old mate. By the sounds of these bloody mob footballers, you could just set them loose on the battlefield, tell them that the bloody French had the ball, and you'd, you'd win the battle on the spot as the, all your, your, your mob footballers went and bashed the, you know, bashed the enemy's heads in to get it off them. So, I don't know. Anyway, the football was also banned in Scotland under James I in 1424, and then again under James II in 1457. James II also banned golf too, just for good measure. Um, across the channel in France, a similar game uh, to mob football called La Soule also had to be banned a few times. And, and here, the church even stepped in with, uh, with threats of excommunication for the players. But again, as I say, you won't be surprised to learn that these bans, by and large, did absolutely nothing to impact the popularity uh, of this game. People hooned around towns and villages, smashing everything from windows to bones as they played football, having a great time. And as we move into the 16th century and beyond, some people begin to appreciate the game a little more. They begin to realise that it does actually have some good to it, despite its violence. Uh, some leaders encouraged it amongst their people as a form of exercise, and begun to and they began to organise the games a little more. Um, and it was in this period in the 16th century that we have the oldest surviving football um, that was found from, uh, we estimate it's around, from around 1540. It was found in up, up north in Scotland in uh, 1981 in the roof structure of Stirling Castle. And this proves, to me at least, that some elements of the human experience transcend history because people have been getting balls stuck on rooftops for centuries. Nothing is new. History has seen it all before. Um, it was also in the 16th century, not just the oldest uh, football that we have, but also in the 16th century, the first known pair of football boots were made at the order of King Henry VIII himself, interestingly enough. So, you know, while a lot of English governments were, were attempting to ban uh, football, old mate Henry is actually interested, interested in having a bit of a bloody kick about there. But the game developed a fair bit uh, from this point onwards in history. Uh, as the years passed, things like proper goals and goalkeepers, even boundary lines and uh, some loose rules all began to emerge. There's still all the violence, of course. Oh, mate, can't, can't be doing away with that just yet. But the modern form of the game is beginning to take shape in the 17th and 18th century, slowly but surely. Now, the old ways, they died hard. Let me tell you this. Football was used uh, not just as a recreational pastime for many, but also at times as a political tool for protest. Um, for example, in 1764, when a series of laws known as the Enclosure Acts were restricting public access to private land, which obviously isn't ideal when you try to boot a ball between villages... Um, and in response to this, a protest was organised. A large football game was pulled together. Hundreds and hundreds of people turned out to play, in inverted commas. But the game itself was actually just a front. It was a diversion. They, they weren't planning to play a game at all. In fact, the people turned out to protest these land restrictions. And rather than play football, what they did was start ripping up all the fences that had been put up around the restricted land or just burning the fences to the ground. And then once they had done that, presumably they had the game of football on this 
newly liberated land. Uh, They went from busting up fences to busting up the blokes from the neighbouring village. Anyway, as I say, the modern game began to take shape, come into focus here as time went on, largely thanks now to the involvement of a different institution, English public schools uh, from the 17th century onward. English public schools, which are confusingly actually just private schools, um, they began to codify rules and regulations uh, for for mob football, for, for football as it, as it you know started to become known. Um, from as I say, from in, in the 1600s, 17th century, one bloke in particular, Richard Mulcaster, did a lot in establishing things like teams, positions, referees, coaches, and the like. That sort of thing. Mulcaster organised football games at Eton College, very famous school in England. You may have heard of it. Um, they were organised, regulated in contrast to the you know, the bone breaking, village raising games that span miles and miles. Other people, as well as Mulcaster, contributed, adding other rules and regulations as time went on. Uh, boundaries, goals scoring, a reduction in the, uh, in the wanton violence and the utterly incomprehensible offside rule. Some people claim to know what it is. I, I, you know, I've never met anyone who can explain it in, in, in terms that I understand. Um, but uh, now, from this period onwards, we start to see documented references uh, to rather, I mean, relatively speaking, rather strict regulations on, on, on gameplay and, and rules that were, that were enforced during these organised games. For example, in 1660, there, are, uh, there is a document that lays out uh, a ban on any strikes above the level of the ball. Um, so obviously, you know, if the ball was up in there, you could do it if you wanted, but if it was down on the ground, you couldn't belt your opponent around. Interestingly, though, what this led to, more than anything else, was just a whole lot of broken shins because people started to attack people at a lower level rather than, you know, belting them around the head, they started to kick their shins in instead. And so, you know, the violence just became more concentrated on a certain area. Obviously, at this point, the game still didn't look a lot like modern soccer. For one thing, players could still use their hands, which is obviously uh, very different to the game that we understand to be soccer today. But it was getting closer to our modern conception of the sport with each passing year until, in the early 19th century, the first properly codified rules were set out in 1815 at Eton College, although um, even well after this, various schools around England still stuck to their own house rules. But football also around this period in the 19th century, it became a lot less popular amongst commoners and the working class. And this happened for a couple of different reasons. Working hours started to increase significantly, enormously, uh, for, for workers and uh, you know for the working class. Thanks to the thanks to the industrial industrial revolution, uh, football instead became a pastime for those at wealthy public schools, not those who were working you know six days a week from before sun up till after sundown, uh, labouring away in factories and whatever else. And additionally. The Highway Act of 1835 completely banned football uh, from being played on, as you might have already guessed, public highways. Um, It also did a lot of other things, the Highway Act, a lot of other transport reforms, like, for example, keeping to the left of the road. But the Highway Act imposed enormous fines to anyone who broke the law. And this, unlike so many other laws and decrees before it, actually worked. Mob football effectively died out as a result of the Industrial Revolution and the Highway Act. And instead, 
It was organised school games of football that took over and really began to, to push football into the modern era. The schools that were playing it, they encouraged the game as a way for students to exercise and keep fit. But again, they stuck to their own rules dogmatically, which led to increasingly differing games as time went on. Like these games just looked very different from one another from school to school. Uh, which led to some very silly situations because with the rise of railway transportation in England, inter-school football matches became more and more common. However, a team would turn up at a, at a rival school and would be playing at times effectively a completely different, a completely different sport. Um, and so there were very, very silly compromises that were made uh, to these inter-school matches sometimes. For example, they would play one half of the game using the home school's rules and then for the second half of the game, they'd use the visiting school's rules. And, I mean, the differences between the, the – you know, some of them were small, some of them were big, but, but, but it was completely untenable, especially as the, these, the sport, you know, became more and more popular and, and, and the game sort of took off between these, these schools and colleges. So as a result, this led eventually to the proper codification of the rules, although, of course, not everyone could agree on which rules should stand and which shouldn't. Two things combined at this point to make football more accessible to the common people as well. Even though, even though the rules couldn't be agreed upon, um, the working class actually got back into this sort of, you know, this new football 2.0, if you like, uh, after the, the public schools sort of had their way with it, even if the rules were, were different from place to place. The Factory Act of 1850 mandated a minimum amount of recreation time for workers. So now they actually had time to play and... And interestingly, the second thing that uh, that aided the the public development of football from this point onwards as an organised sport was the development of a piece of technology that when I'm going to when I tell you the name of it, you're going to think, well, of course, actually, how obvious this is, right? The lawnmower. The lawnmower wasn't invented until 1830, and when it caught on in popularity in the coming years, it became a way, of course, to prepare sports grounds, both at these elite schools and in, you know, common areas, common parks and stuff for the general public. So it's no coincidence that that it's not just football, many other sports as well saw their rules codified around this time, thanks to thanks to the development of the of the, of the lawn, lawn tennis, lawn bowls, other games that were played on grass, all became more strictly regulated with the development of a machine that so greatly aided in preparing an area in which to play them and therefore gave the sports a wider appeal and a wider accessibility to a working class that now enjoyed a greater amount of leisure time after the uh, after the Factory Act of 1850. So it's very funny because you look at the lawnmower out in the backyard and you don't think, oh, well, that's responsible for the rise of, you know, different different sporting codes. But the, lawn, the invention of the lawnmower actually had a lot to do with the development of football the devel- and, and popularity of football. As a game that was played by, uh, by, by of, of, at least in an organised sense, by the uh, by the working classes. Anyway, the rising popularity of football as an actual proper organised sport, both in these schools and these posh schools, and uh, you know amongst the common working class, um, this directly led the popularity directly led to the first great schism amongst football codes as clubs came together to debate, negotiate, formulate, and eventually settle upon a unified set of rules. Now, this wasn't an easy thing to do. Every faction was pretty keen on their own particular version, uh, many of which were, of course, mutually incompatible. But this great schism that I mentioned there a second ago was principally over a single question. And this single question was, could you use your hands? Were you, al- were you allowed to handle the ball? Could you use your hands while playing this game of football? Now, most versions of the game allowed players to use their hands, uh, at least in a minimal sense, 
uh, you were allowed to use your hands to stop the ball. You weren't allowed to propel it or carry it or pick it up or anything else like that. But if the ball was in the air, you could reach out and you could use the use the uh, use your hand to stop the ball in its tracks, and then you would have to uh, you know dribble it or kick it along the ground. Um, and this was a great point of contention because in in some uh, in some school codes of, uh, of football, you were allowed to pick it up. You were allowed to propel it forward. You were allowed to, uh, uh, you know, do many things that obviously would never be seen in the modern uh, in the modern game of soccer. And this led to an enormous uh, division between different football playing communities. There was another one as well, which is also quite funny. Another great point of contention was whether hacking should be allowed. Hacking here referring to the act of kicking another player in the shins. Um, <laughs> now, most uh, most people who came together to debate these the, the new uh, laws of the game were not in favour of hacking remaining as part of the sport. But when a ban on hacking was proposed at these negotiations, one of the delegations withdrew from the negotiations altogether, claiming that hacking was essential to the game and that banning it would ruin the sport forever. I mean, it didn't, but it is very funny to think about, you know, there being a a club or maybe a couple of clubs there, a couple of teams that were so determined, they just wanted to get a good shin kicking in that they walked away from the negotiating table. They were going to die on the shin kicking hill. Um, Anyway, the long and the short of it is this. In 1863, the Football Association was created when, on the 26th of October, a finalised set of rules was agreed upon in the Freemasons Tavern on Great Queen Street in London after a long series of meetings. Um, These new laws of the game were broadly an amalgamation of two of the leading football codes at the time, the Cambridge rules combined with the Sheffield rules. And while some people held out, eventually these standard rules caught on broadly and created the modern game of soccer. But still... Not all clubs agreed, particularly on the whole you-can't-use-your-hands bit. And so in 1871, rugby football uh, was properly codified with the creation of the Rugby Football Union, uh, a creation of those clubs that uh, that wanted to you know, still be able to continue to pick up the ball and run with it. Rugby was the name given to this code because uh, it was the name of one of the schools, the rugby school, um, that played this style of football, and that's how the sport got its name. There is a story that it's apocryphal. You may have heard of it about a, you know, a student, a, a student at, at, at rugby school uh, called William Webb Ellis, who one day picked up the ball and ran forward with it and invented rugby in the process. It's entirely untrue. It's not a, it's, it's got nothing to do with the actual origin of the sport. Even so, the Rugby World Cup is actually... Uh, the, the trophy they played for, it's, it, it's named after him, the Webb Ellis Trophy, even though the bloke didn't actually invent the sport. So not bad there, William. Well played, mate. Um, but uh, rugby emerged as something of a counterpoint to the football that was played by those who had agreed to the, the rules in the Freemasons Taverns, those who, who, who had set out the laws of the game there. Um, uh, uh, so broadly speaking, in two corners, we had soccer, association football, and rugby, rugby football, and these two codes uh, continued, you know, to to develop in parallel without really ever having too much to do with each other from that point onwards. Now, obviously, soccer, in uh, as you know, involves no touching the ball with your hands unless you're either the goalkeeper or Diego Maradona. Uh, whereas rugby players can uh, pick up the ball, they can carry it, and they can even throw it, but uh, but only backwards. And uh, soccer has evolved to become uh, almost non non contact. It seems to attract players with. Absurdly low pain thresholds, but unbelievably quick uh, recovery times, Uh, whereas rugby obviously is about as rough as it gets. 
And uh, obviously soccer has a single way to score a goal. You can put the ball in the goal and you get one goal for doing that. Uh, and the goal obviously being just a small uptight re- uh, upright rectangle at the end of the field. Uh, while in rugby, you can score by getting the, uh, the ball over the try line at the end of the field or by booting it through two upright posts. Um, and today, you know, when it comes to the, the success that both of these sports have had over the years, obviously both of them have flourished, but uh, for reasons that completely escape me, in- incomprehensibly here, soccer is, for whatever reason, the more popular sport. There is no accounting for taste. Um, but even for all the differences, you know, when it comes to uh, the, their spread and popularity around the world, both soccer and rugby, uh, of course, share a common ancestor in both uh, mob football as well as English public school uh, football codes. But rugby was not the only code to develop in parallel to association football, of course, because around the world, exported by the British to their colonies or their cultural descendants, other forms of the game were developing as well as soccer and as well as rugby. And this includes, of course, the objectively greatest kind of football, bloody Aussie rules, mate, up there, Kazali, bloody Jezalinko. Aussie rules football goes all the way back to 1858 when people organised a series of football games in Melbourne's Parklands. Uh, they were playing a game that was loosely based on English, uh, English public school football, but new rules were drawn up by the Melbourne Football Club. Bloody boo the Ds, bunch of Range Rover driving snobs they are, mate, boo. Although they are the oldest... Uh, professional football club in the world in the entire world not just Australian rules they're actually the oldest professional club in the entire world so we will give them that um although mate haven't won a premiership since 1964 have you get it up you Melbourne get it up yeah bloody Melbourne demons haven't won a premiership what's that oh um who won the most recent pre- well I mean I, I wasn't going to bring up who I wasn't going to bring it up I wasn't going to talk about who the most recent premiership uh, team is, but seeing as you asked, I guess I better tell you that it is, of course, the bloody Richmond Tigers, mate. Greatest club on earth. Won three out of the last four. Can the bloody Tigers get it up, your mate? Richmond Tigers, number one. What are you going to do about it? Anyway, back in 1858, these colonial Aussies, they're playing uh, their version of football, which may have actually been in- influenced by uh, an indigenous game called Mangrook. We're not 100% sure about that. Um, and after this, the rules for the game were drawn up, as I say, in 1859 by the Melbourne Football Club, and the game grew more and more popular in uh, in, in Australia, particularly, of course, in, in Victoria, the colony of Victoria. Um, very free-form game. If you've not seen Australian rules football, very, very free-form game, played on an oval field. There's no offside rule. There's no throwing, long, big kicks, um, heavy contact, and a very strong emphasis on athleticism and agility. It's played with an oval ball. Um, the Victorian Football League was established in 1896 and uh, eventually changed its name to the Australian Football League in 1990 after expanding nationally in the 1980s. Today, uh, Australian rules football is the preferred winter sport of uh, the states of Victoria, South Australia, WA and I guess Tasmania, although their support of anything at all is you know, at best marginal and usually just largely irrelevant, so I don't really know how much that counts really. Um, whereas in New South Wales and in Queensland, uh, of course, they prefer rugby. And the reason for that is because, as the saying goes, simple things for simple minds. It uh, obviously has to be nice and simple and, you know, not not too complicated, easy, nice and easy and straightforward, you know, if you want a Queenslander to understand or enjoy it. Um, quite similar 
to Australian rules football is Gaelic football, which developed in Ireland and also has the common heritage of uh, mob football and, and public school football, along with a uh, an Irish football-like game called Corge. Um, Corge, too, was rough and sometimes violent, um, and it could at times span the distances between villages, so it had a lot of similarity to mob football. Uh, initially in the in the nineteenth century, uh, it was actually rugby and association football codes that were that were the most popular in Ireland up until the establishment of the Gaelic Athletic Association, which worked very hard to push out non-Irish games, and this led to the codification of Gaelic football in eighteen eighty seven. It was deliberately differentiated from soccer and rugby uh, with, with changes to things like stoppages, tackling rules, hand passes, and uh, and the removal of the offside rule. All sorts of stuff changed. Um, Gaelic football, they have goals that look like a combined soccer and rugby goal, and players can pick up and run with the ball, which is, which is round. Um, but interestingly, even today, Gaelic football is strictly, strictly played by amateurs only. Players don't get paid, nor do managers or coaches. They all have like real jobs as well as being national sporting superstars. Imagine this, for example, right? One of the greatest Gaelic football goalkeepers of all time, a bloke whose name is Stephen Cluxton, he also works as a high school teacher. He just teaches bloody physics at a high school in addition to being the best goalkeeper the game has ever seen. So it's, it, it, it's really a very, a really interesting approach to the game in, uh, in Ireland there. Anyway, even today, Gaelic football is still enormously popular, and the final of the All-Ireland Senior Championship usually attracts tens of thousands of people to Dublin's famous Croke Park. On the other side of the Atlantic, over in North America, there's another sub-variant of football uh, that developed, of course, uh, a series of codes that, were de- that developed in parallel to soccer, known as gridiron football. Uh, gridiron, as it's known internationally, probably you know for people listening in North America, you may not even heard this term, but it is known internationally as gridiron football after the the lines that are painted on the ground on a on a gridiron pitch. You know, they largely look like a gridiron. Um, both American and Canadian football developed along similar lines to soccer and rugby initially, although, of course, on the opposite opposite side of the Atlantic. Mob football actually existed in North America. It was played throughout New England right through the 19th century, and it was very similar to its transatlantic cousin back on the British Isles. It was messy and it was violent. So violent, in fact, that in the 1860s, it began to get banned uh, in many different places, especially in, in universities that were organising uh, you know, these, these games of football. Uh, Yale, Harvard and the like, they banned, uh, they banned these, these sort of rough and ready games of football. And after the bans, instead, put more structure in place to organise and to regulate the games further. But again, just as with England, these rules actually varied quite significantly from school to school. And it was a very similar story in Canada, too, where games that resembled this sort of weird hybrid of soccer and rugby were played, you know, throughout the 1860s and onwards. Um, But eventually, the rules crystallised. And while the match that is considered today to be the first ever US intercollegiate football match, uh, while this match took place in 1869, it wasn't until 1876 that most US colleges agreed to a new set of rules. And these rules were actually Canadian. These rules were based off of those used by McGill University in Montreal. Harvard uh, played against McGill, liked the rules that McGill was uh, was using to play the you know their particular brand of football, 
brought the rules into the American collegiate system, and most other U.S. colleges eventually were persuaded by Harvard, by the other other uh, clubs and, and, and schools that adopted these rules, to pick them up as well. And so, broadly speaking, the baseline of American football were the McGill rules. Um, now, obviously, you know, they changed. The resulting game at the time was very similar to rugby, but it underwent further change in the coming years. Of course, a bloke named Walter Camp, the father of American football, he was responsible for many changes, uh, such as the, the line of scrimmage. Um, in 1906, American football adopted the forward pass, which is obviously gave rise to the iconic long throws uh, from the quarterback. Um, whereas in Canada, north of the border, the game remained a lot closer to rugby for a longer time until the so-called Burnside rules uh, were adopted in 1903 and picked up you know, by various clubs uh, in the following years. Um, these rules, the Burnside rules, did bring Canadian football closer to American football. Um, and why the games today, the sports today, largely are, you know, by and large, they're, they're very similar. They do retain key differences. Um, there are a couple of sort of different examples you can you can use to to highlight some of the differences between Canadian and American football. I did look this up. Uh, for example, uh, in American football, players are of course allowed to carry conceal assault rifles on the uh, on the field, whereas in in Canada. Uh, in Canadian football, there is a man. There's obviously a mandated forced apology to anyone that you tackle successfully. So, the rules of gridiron are largely incomprehensible. Even after reading them for a long time in researching this episode, still don't really understand what icing the kicker is or what you use all-purpose yardage for. Um, this is a game. I mean, where you can attempt a double reverse. Which I, I mean, I thought we we're playing football, not. Uno, so I don't know what's going on there. From what I can understand, Gridiron mostly involves a very short burst of action after which a referee will decide whether a team did a good enough job to get to try again. Um, and then there's a lot of standing around chatting before they actually do try again. And then eventually the referee gets sick of it and decides that the other team gets to have a turn with the ball. That's as much as I could fathom from what I saw. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that today... American football's championship match is known as the Superb Owl, and it it consistently ranks as the most-watched US TV event of each year. And hilariously, this I found very, very funny indeed, every year around the time of the large game, there is a huge spike in Google searches of how to read Roman numerals. But that, more or less, brings us to the end of our whirlwind tour of the history of football and how it has branched out into other various codes and forms. Obviously, there are so many others. There's futsal, there's flag football, there's rugby sevens, international rules, there's bloody kick to kick. But they all share a common ancestor. And considering the ubiquity of sport in modern life, it's incredible to think how recently sports like football have become the deeply entrenched cultural phenomena that they are today. Soccer is the most popular sport on the planet. It has the largest television audience of any sport worldwide, especially, of course, when the FIFA World Cup comes around. American football attracts the highest number of people to its professional games, and the NFL makes more money than any other sports league on earth. And then, of course, Australian football remains objectively the best variant of all football codes, even if that isn't reflected by its global popularity or viewing numbers or revenue, that doesn't matter. It is still objectively, of course, the best. We can all agree on that. And it all began, it all began when some people in England a thousand or so years ago started a bit of rough and tumble as they tried to boot a ball through the next town's church window 
causing as much mischief and mayhem on the way as they could. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. And for once, it is actually a bunch of four sports fans to which I am addressing this outro. How about that? I hope you enjoyed the uh, our brief whirlwind overview of the history of football. I do like doing these history of something um, episodes. So if you've got an idea for one, I'd love to hear what it is. Please uh, please get in touch with me, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there. And you, like so many other listeners, can get in touch and let me know uh, what you've uh, what you cooked up for me or just any feedback. Any It's always really nice to hear from people. Obviously, I do apologize to people writing. I don't get the chance to reply to, uh, to people's emails. There are just so many of them. Uh, but um, I do read every single one and I appreciate all of them so very, very much. And also, of course, appreciate the people who are supporting me on Patreon. Patreon.com slash half history if you want to support the show. You don't have to. Of course, you don't have to. But if you want to join the exalted ranks of, uh, of those patrons, get access to show notes, uh, uncut episodes. You can listen to all my burps and farts and whatever else. Um, or uh, early access to episodes, of course, as well. Get it a little bit uh, before everyone else. Uh, you can go and sign up there for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, so uh, go and get across that if you feel like it. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening and thanks for uh, for sharing Half House History with your uh, with your friends and your enemies and people that you feel largely ambivalent about. It is greatly appreciated. Got to get those numbers up, of course. Anyway, that is that for this week. Going to close this episode out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit, a football-related question, and a very good one to think about as too comes comes to us from Mr. Rob twenty seven thirty eight, who asks, "How do they grow that white grass on football fields?"